You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Driving down Skid Row had always been a prospect not unlike visiting the set of a George Romero movie. But with the advent of the sleepless prion, that effect had started to envelop the entire city. The sidewalks, malls, movie theaters, tourist attractions, beaches, and restaurants becoming populated with stiff-necked, shuffling sleepless. Zombie jokes were common, gallows humor being about all the situation made room for. Movies themselves had not stopped shooting. Certainly, production had been scaled back, and more than one studio had gone under or, more accurately, been consumed whole by somewhat hardier competitors. But even as energy costs spiked, even as all cities, most suburbs, and many rural areas experienced outbreaks of organized violence, even as the standing army was deployed with obvious permanence to the oil fields in Alaska, Iraq, Iran, Venezuela, and Brazil, even as the draft was reinstated and the gears of the economy audibly snapped their teeth and ground to a squealing halt, even as the drought extended and crops withered, even as the ice caps melted and coastal waters rose, people still liked a good picture. The fact of millions of sleepless wandering about trying to fill the dark hours meant an expansion of one market, even as it contracted in other areas. Charlie Houston is the author of the Hank Thompson trilogy, which includes Caught Stealing, Six Bad Things, and A Dangerous Man. He's also the author of the Joe Pitt Case Books, a vampire noir series that includes Already Dead, No Dominion, Half the Blood of Brooklyn, Every Last Drop, and My Dead Body. His other work includes writing for Marvel Comics and the novels The Shotgun Rule and The Mystic Art of Erasing All Signs of Death. His newest book is Sleepless. Thank you for joining me, Charlie. Thank you for having me. You know, Charlie, you've written books that are have a lot of gritty reality in them. We have the Hank Thompson novels, um, The Shotgun Rule, the Mystic Arts of Erasing All Signs of Death. Even the Joe Pitt case books are really seem like gritty noirs, and the vampirism seems uh, pretty much expected given the level <laughs> of violence in the world you portray. And, and you know, The Shotgun Rule is kind of a, a book about you growing up in some sense. Yeah, I don't want to overplay my hand on on the shotgun rule uh, being about me. I mean, it's it it's set it's set in a fictitious town that is based very much on the town that I grew up in, and it's about you know some rough and tumble boys that I kind of you know was on the fringe more of of that 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 group, and it never went nearly as far as the as things go in the in the book. So, but what strikes me is that here we have a surreal science fiction novel set in the future, and yet I think feel like it's your most personal book to date, the closest to the bone for you. Um, yeah, I, I think that that, <laughs> good, good eye, Rick. Uh, yeah, I think that that's um, certain, certainly true to it to a large extent for, and for a number of reasons. I mean, some of that was by design, you know, so the, I would think in terms of the, um, the, uh, a lot is revealed about me and about my personal taste and, and my feelings about the world in the emotional tone of the book. Um, and uh, the, It's raw. It's raw. It's dark. Uh, it has somewhat of a bleak outlook. Um, and, uh, and it's very, very, very bittersweet in conclusion, uh, which, which speaks a lot toward 
both my my attitude toward the world and also a lot about my taste in fiction actually uh, and what I like to read um, there's I made some difficult emotional choices in the book about about what happens to the characters and the sacrifices they make and the sacrifices they don't make that were perhaps harder than choices I've made previously because I, I, I wanted um, I wanted the emotional experience of the book to be more raw. Um, and then the the kind of the big overarching coincidences of of writing the book. the the biggest one was that before that that early on in the conception of the story, I knew that I wanted the protagonist Park to be a uh, a young first time father. Um, and while I'm by no means young, I'm, I am uh, a first time father and I, I was, uh, my baby was born just about simultaneous with the, uh, the, the month that I had to begin writing the book. Uh, I think she was two months old when I, when I started writing page one. Um, and we had not known there was no child in the offing at all when I was conceiving a park and the fact that he would be a dad. So, so that inevitably meant that there were parallels and and uh it it undoubtedly helped the writing in a lot of ways it also made the writing a lot more difficult in in a lot of ways it was hard to separate separate my experiences from from park's experiences because they were so immediate and then the other uh less uh auspicious or less fortuitous parallel is that i was i wrote the book uh just about entirely through the calendar year of 2008, uh, which was a really frightening year. I mean, this is this is you know fall of 2008. The wheels are coming off of seemingly everything. Uh, there's a, a great deal of popular uh, um, confusion <laughs> and despair about the future of the world, and it, and it seemed for several weeks. There. I mean, and none of this is resolved, but certainly, but it seemed very immediate. The prospect of things becoming deeply unhinged uh, seemed very, very immediate at that at that time. And so as I was writing about this this very immediate future within the book, um, in the context of our world with the added element of, of this pandemic of sleeplessness, um, it seemed like we were heading someplace not dissimilar. <laughs> so, uh, so that all then when you when you ask, talk about this being a personal work, the the fears that it that would have engendered in me anyway became uh, part of the the mood of the book and the content of the book. But the fact that I was a new father in the context of what was going on during those months and the, and and how that heightens your your fears. You're sitting here looking at this baby and saying. Oh my f! What you know? The, what this was really might have been horrible, horrible timing. <laughs> so yeah. One of the things that strikes me: this is a a work of that's both uh, dystopian and apocalyptic, kind of simultaneously, <clears throat> and, and yet it's set almost in what it seems to be the present. Um, one thing that strikes me, though, about these kind of works, and I never thought about dystopias that way, is that. There can be, just as you can experience a personal apocalypse, you can also have a kind of a personal experience of dystopia. And I know that you moved from New York to San Francisco. I'm wondering if part of this, the dystopian aspect of this novel is that is your personal reaction, your, per, your experience of L.A. as a sort of personal dystopia. Right. Yeah, because I moved from New York to Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. um, 
And uh, yeah, you know, part of there is, I mean, of the of the places that I've lived in my life, and even the places that I've I've visited, the only thing that compares to Los Angeles uh, as a kind of present dystopia environment is maybe Las Vegas. Um, there is somebody asked me if I thought that uh, New York or Los Angeles was was which one was more of a science fiction uh, city, and I think it's Los Angeles. There's something about Los Angeles about the uh, the sprawl of it, the fact that it, it's teetering on top of the San Andreas Fault, the fact that, um, you know, the the wildfires, the floods, the storms, the, you know, uh, the impermanence of the city, the fact that it's built on the shifting sands, you know, and it's it's only here by, you know, force of will and, and greed uh, that it flourishes the way it does because, you know, water has been flat out stolen from other people and brought here. Um, if, if that doesn't sound dystopic, is that, is that proper? Then I don't, I don't know what does. Um, and it, it's just definitely seems everything, even the, you know, I've described the sunsets in, 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 in more than one book as, as apocalyptic, you know, um, uh, which is apt, not just because they can look like these, you know, giant red explosions, but because part of what creates that vibrancy is all the pollution in the air that the, that the, that the, the rays of sunlight are actually ref- refracting off of. So, uh, yeah, I definitely think that there was, I knew that this book needed to be set in Los Angeles. I don't know where else I personally could have set it. If I was better traveled, there might've been a different city for me, but for, for me personally, LA. Uh, one of the things that strikes me is about this novel as an apocalypse is what I call the triple A apocalypse. <laughs> when you dial up the triple A and it's no longer working, that's a hint that you're living in some really bad times. And, and you do this a lot in this novel. Talk about the kind of the details that let us know that you're we're living in a place that's absolutely the polar opposite of a utopia. Um, well, you know, it's there. Those are the that's the trick, right? The trick the trick if you're if you're world building and within fiction is to create a, a concrete, believable world for the reader. And I think the danger is to get so caught up in your own imagination and the details of the world that then the story gets bogged down in the description of this. So trying to um, illuminate the little things that are very rela- relatable that can come across the page just as the characters in the course of their everyday life. So, um, so yeah, little things like uh, Park to talking about how AAA has been shut down indefinitely, uh, which for anybody who's ever had a AAA card just sounds, they're, they're like so dependable. It just sounds like the end of the world right there. Um, or, you know, traffic in Los Angeles is a cliche anyway, but uh, discussion of traffic as this... Uh, uh, permanent state of being as people do the unthinkable in LA and just start to um, abandon their cars and car the vehicles actually have become worthless because nobody has gasoline to fuel them up um, and a lot of that just has to do with you know you live a, live in an environment and you know you think about well what happens if this breaks and you just kind of follow the the chain of dominoes and once you think about well what ha- what is the net result if if DMV no longer operates, then what happens? If AAA no longer operates, then then what happens after that? Um, 
as opposed to the bigger stuff, which, you know, is, uh, can sometimes be easier to get a handle on, which is if there's a pandemic of sleeplessness, then, you know, who's blaming who and <laughs> who's shooting at who those can almost be easier. One of the things that, uh, I think is a hallmark of dystopian novels is the sense of permanence and impermanence. Um, dystopias typically try to uh, feature, you know, uh, uh, an almost uh, military state where change has been eliminated, and you've gone in the exact opposite direction here, and, and I think it's all the more alarming. Um, well, I mean, this does seem to be the trend, right? I mean, we're... I mean, the trend seems to be towards a world that's militarizing in rather than in, in large Cold War monolithic structures. It seems to be a world that's militarizing in smaller and smaller and smaller encampments. And it also seems to be a world in, in which uh, change occurs, you know, it's, and I don't think it's a matter of perception. I don't think it's just 24 hour news cycle. I mean, it seems pretty clear that you know, our world is evolving and changing at a very, very, very rapid rate. And actually, one of the things that that I wanted the book to address uh, outside of the fact, and and I would like to interject here that that while this is a dark book and, and while I, I took the writing of it very, very seriously, it is also a crime thriller mm-hmm. uh, within that. Um, but one of the, the larger the issues that I wanted to address was this idea that that you know, we can't stop it from happening, you know, change. We can't stop the future from coming. And right now, the the future that's building itself minute by minute for us right now is, is daunting, to say the least. And um, I don't find anything, of all the people, whether they are the few utopians, uh, the the folks that want to bunker down and, you know, close it I'm I'm so much more willing to embrace anyone who's at least like trying to take on the future, trying to say this is what the world will be, this is what we need to make the world, this is how we need to head in, into it. The the folks that terrify me are the folks that seem to think that they can dig in their heels and make the world what it was a year ago or two years ago, and and get that back or keep that because that's so clearly the road to ultimate destruction at this point, or the road to, you know, really, really bad times. Um, so I wanted the, I wanted there to be a sense in the book that the characters, everybody's making kind of one of three choices, which, you know, simplifies it uh, drastically. And there are characters, people represented by Park, who, um, who want to, to keep, want to keep the world as it is, who can't face the idea, conceive of the idea of the future that, that might be looming out there and is trying to protect what has been. And there are people like Jasper, the assassin who's stalking him, who doesn't necessarily embrace the future, but but uh, is willing to accept its inevitability and the fact that some people will learn to live in the future and some people won't. And that's just the way it is. And then there's the vast kind of middle ground, which I think is is folks who uh are really just in denial that anything is really that could possibly change that dra- that radically you know um it's like climate denialists uh climate change denialists to me i, I think i mean i understand where they're coming from but it's very comfortable to 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 want it to be wrong <laughs> to want climate change to be wrong because otherwise 
you know, we're screwed. <laughs> it's like, even if we, everybody's telling us, even if we start today, we're screwed. So it's so much more comforting to to look at the, you know, quote unquote evidence that climate change is inaccurate and, uh, and say, no, but it's okay. It's not really happening. See, it's okay. And I get that. I get that. I want to watch TV too, but you know, it's probably not going to be, you know, it's probably not going to be that much fun for very much longer. Well, one thing that will, I think, continue to be fun for a long time is reading books and certainly reading books like this. This is a really interesting literary construction. And, and you talked about this, and, and I, I definitely want to address this as a as a wonderful uh, kind of noir novel, a science fiction noir. It's a kind of a classic subgenre at this point. But I think what you've done with it literarily is very interesting. Talk about the choices you made in terms of the perspectives and points of view that you write the novel from because it's challenging and uh, and very interesting. Um, yeah, well, the, the, the story is told from three points of view. And uh, the first point of view is the protagonist, Park, uh, tells his story through his first-person journal entries. And uh, they, because he's in the midst of investigating a murder within this apocalyptic environment, they're, uh, they're very off the cuff and they're very immediate. They're very rambling and stream of consciousness. Um, and they include his personal thoughts about his relationship with his wife and his fears as a father and also uh, his thought processes as he tries to unravel this case. The second voice is first person told by Jasper, the assassin that's stalking him. And uh, this is uh, Jasper telling his own story in past tense, uh, separate from with a kind of unawareness of what was going on with Park other than than uh, his pursuit of him uh, as, as he learns who Park is and follows. And as we learn who Jasper is. Exactly. Too. And this is also how we learn about Jasper. And the third voice is a third person voice that tells us everything that's going on with Park that Park cannot tell us in his journals. There, you know, it started. There was basically a storytelling conceit, conceit that I wanted to use. I wanted, um, I wanted room to get at these different characters. I, I definitely wanted. Um, it seemed somehow awkward to. Park did not seem like the kind of character who would tell his own story first person, and uh, the conceit behind the book is that um, the book has been written by one of the characters within the story. Uh, so the character has collected Park's journal entries uh, and collected these other uh, aspects of the story and written it uh, after it's all completed. Um, so trying to knit together the parts of the story that that character would know firsthand, the parts of that story that the character might get from Park's journals, the parts of the story that that character might get through talking to Park, and then the parts of that character, the parts of the story that that character would have to imagine, um, was all part of the process of of putting it putting it together. Um, but I I wanted, um, and I may have been a little bit overly influenced by Joan Didion uh, on on this with this device of of wanting there to be an actual voice behind the narrative. In the past, when I've written, in the past, the narrator, the third person narrator is either 
is either the protagonist and there's no context given for why they're telling the story you know uh in um in doa or or rather in uh and um uh, um oh cred double indemnity the context for the storytelling is fred mcmurray recording making the wire recording of mm-hmm. you know of the story and uh in my books uh there really hasn't been a whole lot of that. We find out at the end of the Joe Pitt case books that he's been recording everything. Um, but for the most part, it's either internal stream of consciousness of a character or I'm just writing the book and I'm not telling anybody. You know, it's just just a book. And I wanted to use that conceit. And I'm not sure why. It just felt right, which is sometimes all I've got to go on. I, I wanted to, to address some of the... Um... Uh, science fiction elements of this book because it's it's really quite a nice piece of science fiction and, and you do some interesting things with the science fiction tropes and one of the things I think you do quite well is to write a science fiction novel that doesn't necessarily read like science fiction I, and I think this is good for your career if nothing else um, uh, could you talk about let, let's talk first about um, one of the major aspects of this is this uh, is virtual reality, and you approach virtual reality from a, I think, a different perspective than I've seen in other science fiction novels. It's a, a little more of a, a mystery version of it. So tell us about the the game chasm and about some of the the gold farming, how virtual money becomes real money, and that's happening right now. Yeah, yeah. This is you know this is all this is not really so much the only work of imagination going on here is just basically you know, slapping a different name on on some of this stuff that's actually <laughs> happening today. It's not, you know, I, I mean, other than uh, other than the prion disorder, which is also based on, which is based on an actual uh, prion disease called fatal familial insomnia. Um, there's, you know, there's very little in here that's just made from whole cloth. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a there's a, a uh, massively multiplayer game within the book called uh, Chasm Tide. And um, for the folks who don't know, massively multiplayer games are online gaming environments where thousands of people can simultaneously play the game. And the best known and most popular of these is World of Warcraft. Um, and the, the conceit within the book is that uh, Chasm Tide is... Uh, a massively multiplayer game where people share, players share the environment so they can interact very easily and incidentally with one another. And it's become not only a very popular distraction, it's also become very popular for people to use it to meet each other socially because travel has become so difficult because of the disease and because of the costs of fuel and the dangers, etc. Um, so it's become a vital part of day-to-day life for a lot of people. And... Um, something that happens within this world is uh and this this is just what this is gold gold farming is something that happens in real life and mostly around centers around world of warcraft is uh gaming professionals who uh spend their time with their characters online in the game uh um, campaigning to accumulate either gold in game or magical artifacts things that are of value and then uh, other players um, pay real money to set up, and they set up exchanges within the game environment to collect these artifacts or this gold uh, so that they can advance and build up their own gamers so that the, you know, there's this um, 
real slants, real virtual um, uh, exchange going on. And uh, it's it's a huge headache <laughs> for the for the folks who own World of Warcraft trying to govern this. And uh, and there 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 are um, there are moral encampments on, on both sides, and uh, there are what amount to um, uh, sweatshops for gold farmers, uh, where uh, very you know people are paid a very very slight amount of money to sit for hour after hour after hour after hour, engaged in repetitive tasks like killing zombies one after another after another another, and accumulating the couple cold coins that are a reward for doing this until they can build up a stock and then their broker moves it on. Now, one of the comments when your character says that what's happening in Chasm is real. Reality is what we make now. I think that's an interesting observation because especially in terms of a dystopian novel, this is a, a, a dystopia where it's gotten pretty bad because it really doesn't matter anymore, does it? Yeah, um, I mean, I think that that's the attitude of a lot of the characters that that or the the smaller characters or a lot of the pop the general population in the background of the book might be that the danger of of a world that seems to be slipping away from us is that um, will collapse into fatalism, and uh, the attitude that we can't we can't make the future any better. Uh, so we may as well just do anything now, uh, because it, not, not, neither choice matters whether we try to make things better or we just don't do anything or we just embrace making things worse by being greedy or or whatever. It's again, it's the it's the comfort of of powerlessness, you know. Um, it's you know it, there's it's the comfort of in the same way of you know handing your life over to a higher power, whatever that might be. That higher power may just be fate you know, and your, your choices, if fate is a particularly frightening thing, higher power to hand your, your will over to, because there, it has no moral underpinnings. So you don't even, you know, you can't even rely on, you know, a, a holy book or something that describing <laughs> how you should behave in the service of this higher power, which, you know, is not necessarily, doesn't, doesn't seem to work out very well these days either. Um, but yeah, and and the character you're you're talking about, um, uh, Cager, who is this kind of uh, guru of Chasm Tide, and uh, I think that that he's hampered by uh, an emotional disorder that keeps him from from viewing the world as as particularly real. Um, so it's more comfortable for him to live within within that environment. Um, but, sociopathy he's a sociopath oh yeah mm -hmm. yeah yeah but he's also um but yeah that's we don't have to go any further than that that's pretty much that that sums it up um we'll go further i'm curious what well no i, I was just going to say that uh uh there's any number of ways to diagnose that character but mm. uh but but essentially he doesn't you know play well with others so <laughs> so it's easier for him to, you know, play with the representations of others because he feels like he's trying to, he does not, he's low affect. So he does not, 
so in, I don't know if I ever diagnosed it in the book, but he's basically suffers from Asperger's mm. in my mind. Uh, so he does not interpret other people's reactions or emotions well. So he always feels like he's interacting through this weird veil. Uh, so for him to be able to, to live in a world where everybody is wearing masks and, you know, uh, that's very comforting and, and puts him on a firmer footing, especially since he's really good at it. Um, can, you know, just make him feel more like a real person. <laughs> you know, I think one of the things about dystopias is they always, there's always something kind of good about them. I mean, in, in that there's a reason, th the reason things get that way is that, you know, the, the original setup is perceived, well, this is going to be really good. We'll get put Big Brother in charge of everything. Or this is going to be really good. We're going to, you know, gene splice everybody into a brave new world. And it's all just going to be perfect. And in your world, it's, well, we're just going to let everything go whither it shall. <laughs> and it's all going to work out great. And one of the interesting things, and this applies to the virtual world, is that you say that this is a world where mental acuity is more highly valued than bloodlust. In the game, in mm -hmm. Chasm Tide, yeah, the you know World of Warcraft is uh, is is basically a fighting environment. You know, there's there's more there's more to it than that. Um, as I'm sure the World of Warcraft fans will email in to announce. Um, but it, it is basically a game where the characters advance through through fighting. And when I was a kid, I was a fantasy gamer. I played, you know, loads and loads of Dungeons and Dragons and stuff in my in my early teens. And um, I wanted it to be for for whatever reason. Maybe it's just was my personal taste in gaming was expressing itself as I was as I was describing it. But I wanted it to be. Um, an environment that uh, encourages problem solving and uh, the ability to build alliances and to work with people or conversely to manipulate people. But I wanted the game environment to be something that um, that doesn't reward people just for bloodlust. There's a there's a variation on the game within the book called Blood Hole or War Hole, uh, which I think kind of sums it up. Uh, <laughs> In a number of ways. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, that's that was what was going on there. And, and the other aspect of your dystopia that's kind of nice and, and almost charming is the Midnight Carnival. I, I mean, it, it's what's interesting about that. Well, for one thing, the food sounds great. Talk about the street <laughs> food. I mean, <laughs> dystopia often has really bad food, but this is that's I think the one aspect of this. Boy, I want to get out there and have some of that fish. <laughs> Can I get it now? Yeah. Well, I, I don't. I don't know if you can get. I don't know if you can get that particular. Uh, that particular dish. Uh, no, I. You know, I think this is a pretty common trope in in uh, in near future science fiction. I mean, it's pretty. You know, the big open chaotic open air market where everything is, you know, um, is available for a price, and um, you know the the. There's, you know, there is some off-page violence that's discussed in that in that section of the book, but for the most part, I guess it does get kind of presented as a, you know, freewheeling kind of, you know, uh, uh, a carnival play envir environment. Uh, um, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Um, 
but yeah, there's a there's a Vinny the Fish, the character you're talking about, who has the fish stand, is based very very loosely on on uh, a guy I knew named Vinny the Fish, who uh, was a seafood purveyor when I was a when I was a bar manager at a place, and uh, I kind of just thought about what Vinny the Fish might be like in this world. Um, one of the things uh, about you know uh, the these cities like Los Angeles is that you know it's diaspora's destination is dystopia. <laughs> is it not? That's where they all come, and and you do a great job of creating this kind of uh, even more ethnically mixed. And it's not—I wouldn't say that that it's not—they're not mixing. <laughs> it's just like throwing a bunch of rocks into a blender. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you, you end up with a lot of chips and they're pressed up against each other, but they can never really blend, right? Mm. Um, well, th- there's and there's a few things that work there. You know, one is, um, you know, we're an urban we're an urban globe now. We're over 50% of the world's population is now living in cities. Um, and I think in the West, you know, you say city, and of course you picture LA or New York or Houston or Chicago or Seattle or or whatever it is you picture. But you picture a, a fairly modern city, and and what what's really happening is that you know of of that fifty point whatever percent who are now living in cities, the vast majority of them are living in horrible, horrible squalor uh, slums that uh, Crete on the on the edges of of the cities, but are still part of the urban environment. Um, and, uh, I think, uh, I think that we are still have some, have some room here in Los Angeles and, and, uh, most of the States before, um, slums become, uh, quite as chaotic and prevalent and, uh, rapidly developing, start metastasizing at quite the same rate as they do in, in a great deal of the third world, but not all that much time and I think what the is happening in the book is you start seeing the precursors of that and it's accelerated because of the conflicts that are being born you know and and as pop vast populations have to ship shift out of the places they traditionally live um, they have to go where there is food and services and ideally jobs. So that means, you know, going to a city. And if large populations have to start shifting within what is already an urban environment, they got to live somewhere, you know. And if there aren't houses, houses if they're in housing for them, they're going to start putting up tents and, you know, corrugated tin and whatnot. And you're going to have instant slums. And there are, you know, there's a te- there are, there's a, a tent city uh, in Griffith Park in the in the novel of of uh, evacuees from the wildfires in the canyons there's a a rapidly developing refugee camp slash slum in the long-term airport parking at at lax Uh, and there's more stuff that would be happening off the page in this context and um and i think that as as larger social services break down as large government breaks down people become more dependent on what's in their immediate area and they're going to cling to people who provide. And they're also going to cling to people who they trust. And that's largely going to be the people that they know, the people that are like them. And it, and it probably means that, uh, that our cultural divisions get heightened instead of erased and that people start to kind of contract back into what, it, what they know and what they're comfortable with. Um, 
it strikes me that uh, one of the um, aspects of this book, I think that's really, really important, is that the emotional core of this book, and we talked a little bit about this, um, the, the relationship between uh, Park and his wife Rose and, and, and their daughter and how Jasper, be, who starts out as somewhat almost an automaton in, in some ways, becomes involved in that. Could you talk about creating that kind of dynamic? Because it, it's kind of, it's pretty harrowing what we see in the novel. Uh, yeah, you know, this one of the hardest choices that I made was deciding that Park's wife would be infected with the with the disease, with the sleeplessness, um, because I already knew that the disease was not curable and that it was 100% fatal. So once I made the choice that she was infected to it, that meant that it was a difficult it was a di- it's a difficult choice because you're emotionally invested in your character. So on the one, it's like, do I really want to put this guy through it? And by extension, put myself through it to some extent. From a technical writing standpoint, it means that you're really putting a dark heart. I mean, you're already dealing an apocalypse, so you've already got that. But it means that at the heart of this, the the human story is going to be, you know, it's going to be emotionally loaded from very, very early on. You know, we, we discover very early in the book uh, that Park's wife is is infected and it, and and just you know what I was talking about earlier about you know the the tone of the book being reflective of of some of what's important to me personally, it was just something I was ready to do. I was I was ready to to tell a story like that. It also made it possible for, and made it kind of. Because Park is so. There is no part of Park's world that is not slipping away, you know. He's losing his wife. He's watching her disintegrate as a person before him. And he's watching the world disintegrate as a before him, and to me that makes it, it it makes more sense that he is so adamant in wanting to reverse the change in the world, and uh, and cling to his principles, no matter what they cost him or his family or anyone else. Let's talk about the disease that's at the heart of this book. That's really the plot driver. It's based on a on a real disease. So when did you happen across this? This is a really interesting uh, aspect of this novel. So, you know, I, I read uh, some time back. Uh, I had read um, a couple articles that uh, that, and I don't know if they were excerpts or uh, if they grew into the larger book. But it's a book by uh, D. T. Max. Please correct that later if I <laughs> have it wrong. It's a book by D.T. Max called The Family That Couldn't Sleep, and it's about a, a, a prion disease called fatal familial insomnia. There's a great deal of, of apparently, there's a great deal of, of scientific debate about what prions are, do they exist, are they infectious agents, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But, um, uh, but what's essential to this is that uh, this is a, it's an inherited uh, prion disorder or disease that affects a handful of family lines, um, uh, several dozen, and most of them are Italian and a, a few of them are African. And um, the disease does many, many horrible things, but in its later stages, the sufferers become 100%, uh, suffer from 100% insomnia. And uh, this lasts uh, for several weeks to a couple months. Um, as they lose the ability to sleep, their brain stops loses the ability to govern any number of of processes in the body and 
the personalities disintegrates, the body disintegrates. And what my understanding of from from my reading of the book is that the cruelest twist of this is that the the victims lose their as their identity slips away, they never lose their sense of humanity. They never lose their awareness that they are a person and that something horrible is happening to them. And uh, that from what I understand, there really isn't, uh, there's no real treatment to comfort them. There's no, not even a chemical treatment to just knock them out that's, that's effective. It's a horrible, horrible, horrible disease. Um, and, you know, the only mercy is that it's so isolated. Um, so there, you know, and there's just something about the inability to sleep that's kind of gripping, you know, for everybody can relate to it. And, uh, and I specifically have just always been kind of fascinated by sleep and dreams and, um, and what sleep does to the brain or lack of it does to the, to everything. Um, so it was something that my imagination kind of grabbed upon. And because I'm a genre writer, I thought about it in context of a genre story. So what, you know, what happens if there's a plague of sleeplessness and then what, you know, what if you have a, a young idealistic undercover cop in the middle of this who is pursuing a murder investigation that uh, he thinks links to a conspiracy behind the, the disease. This uh, novel has a real, you know, great landscape uh, of dystopia. Every Kind of everywhere you look, things are, are fairly grim. Um, there's a lot of violence and, and apparently since we haven't ever bothered to control guns, that it, when you don't do that, then the next step is you don't have to bother to control grenade launchers either. Well, I mean, we. This, this I don't think this is no great. There's a lot of guns out there, and uh, it doesn't take a lot of imagination to know what happens. You know, when uh, when the world starts breaking down, what people are going to start doing with their guns? They're going to start pointing. I mean, there's. A, there's a reason why, you know, Mexican drug cartels are getting all their guns up here. It's because they're, you know, they're easy to come by or relatively easy to come by. I heard a story on NPR that uh, there's literally one gun store in all of Mexico, and apparently it's on a military base. And you have to go through a months long licensing process to get um, to get a voucher to be able to go in there and and buy and buy a gun. Um yeah, you know, I mean, we what we're gun we're gun culture, we're gun we're gun country. Um, there's a book called I can't remember the author's name. There's a book called Zombie Island uh, about a you know a it's a it's a very good but traditional uh, uh, and tra and traditional zombie story about global zombie epidemic, and the um, protagonist works for the UN, and at one point he talks about the you can you could make a map of the world and you could chart the uh, the areas where the zombies uh, infections are under control by looking at a map of uh, UN gun control hotspots, basically pre pre outbreak. So any place before the disease that had enormous problems with uh, with military arms, that's where the zombie plague is under control. As any place that had you know too many guns. <laughs> um, this novel, and I think a lot of uh, dystopias talk about uh, class distinctions. A and you have a, a character who remarks that pretty soon, you know, the smart poor are going to start going after the stupid rich until one of the stupid rich blows up everything. 
which seems uh, uh, altogether uh, uh, too 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 uh, plausible. Could you talk about um, creating, you know, the the kind of uh, the class warfare aspect of, of dystopia and how it's presented in this novel? Because you literally have the the streets of Beverly Hills are literally walled off. Yeah, which doesn't seem like a stretch <laughs> at all. Uh, yeah, well, you know, you want to talk about class warfare. Let's, you know, all we have to do is look at the political climate right now. I mean, everybody's in office is catering to populism and, you know, and in many cases, the lowest, worst form of populism. And I'm no, I can't think of a single political leader right now that I have any particular faith in. Uh, so I get it. But uh, yeah, I mean, it was, this is, this is, we just went through one of the great reorganizations of, of wealth in the history of the world. You know, a great, a great deal of imaginary wealth was made to disappear. And a great deal of what was left was moved from, you know, what was remained left of the middle class into the upper class where, you know, this, this seems like we're heading towards a, you know, we've, I mean, you've seen, there's a graph out there that, that, uh, anyway, yeah, so people, we've got a small, tiny people. This is this is not science fiction. This is what's going on out there. We've got a tiny number of people, and with 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 whom, whom the vast majority of wealth is concentrating. We've got a whole lot of people that have very little to kind of you know share about, and the people at the top, you know, I mean, everybody has guns, but the people at the top are going to have access to the biggest guns, and uh, the people at the bottom are going to depend largely on on their numbers. I don't, and I'm not saying that there's a revolution brewing or anything like that. I don't, I'm just saying that if it, that it's not hard to imagine where that might uh, end up. One of your characters comments about that the future is in designed materials. And I think this strike, this uh, connects also to your uh, reading of Michael Pollan. Um, Could you talk, tell us what are design materials? This this for me actually comes out of the DT Max book. Out of, oh, okay. Uh, out of this is a reference in in uh, DT Max in the the family that couldn't sleep, and uh, in that context, as they were described, design materials are uh, um, uh, proteins that are um, that are uh, um, that are taught or or teased into. Um, formations that uh, will then, in in the manner of a prion, when you put them next to another prion, will cause that prion to fold in a similar in a similar ma- manner. Um, so it's a form of genetic manipulation, but not of the genome of of actual proteins to use um, conformational influence. I think I can't now. I can't remember the term um, to create you know, different protein structures and, and lots of different things that you can create from that. Um, but I'm, you know, I, the, the science in the book is all pseudoscience. So you don't want to, you don't want to take it too seriously. Well, uh, tell us about your reading of Michael Pollan. I don't, I'm not sure. Oh, uh, well, the, the corn aspect. Oh, of the, of, of, uh, the genetic manipulation of, uh, of corn. Um, uh, this was just general research. Oh, Again, okay. this wasn't mm-hmm. this. I don't. I don't know who that is. Uh, he wrote a book called *The Omnivore's Dilemma*. Oh, a, no. about corn and the, yeah. the ubiquity of corn in our diet. Right, how right, it's right, right, Everywhere. No, I know. I know of the book, and mm-hmm. I think I've heard him interviewed and whatnot. But no, I didn't read. I didn't read the book. This is just. Well, hey, I mean, you only have to be marginally aware to know about the ubiquity of corn in our diet at this <laughs> at this stage of the game, um, and uh, I. 
I was just curious. I mean, it's really ultimately it's a plot. You know, it's just mm-hmm. it's a plot element. It's mm-hmm. something that uh, that was necessary to explain a major plot point. And uh, I was looking for a likely uh, suspect. And uh, everybody, you know, everybody is kind of finds genetically modified uh, crops ominous. Uh, so you know, that's that was about it. One of the things I've heard science fiction sometimes described as predicting the present, a means of, and uh, the complement to that is the my favorite quote from Kim Stanley Robinson, who says, "We're living in a bad science fiction novel." <laughs> Seems unfortunately true. It's two thousand one without the uh, without the moon base and Blade Runner without the flying cars. Yeah, yeah. Where's my jetpack? That's <laughs> my... the that's the battle cry of the science fiction fan. Yeah, uh, talk to us. I, I mean, the sleepless. You know, are are in many ways like the, the millions and millions of people infected with HIV made much more present. You know, visible. And you also talk about um, Patriot Two and the police powers. Uh, talk about you know just how much of this book, even though it's really a dystopia, is that we're actually living in dystopia. Oh, well, I don't think you know it's it's hard because we're talking about because the subject is dystopias, and because I'm I'm trying to you know it, it sounds like I'm I that that is what I believe, and it sounds mm-hmm. it's be very easy to think that I'm very grim and and very down on the future, uh, which is not the case at all as in, in point of fact. Um, I don't think we're, we're living in a dystopia. I mean, I, I would be lying if I said I did not have moments of despair. Uh, but, uh, but on the whole, I, f- I feel like we're doing okay. You know, when, when, and, I, and I may just be a matter of when you think about how bad it could be, <laughs> we're doing okay. <laughs> But sometimes that's the only metric you have, you know. Um, you, you, you know, it, it it gets, this is the first time I've ever tried to do anything speculative or science fiction uh, for, for publishing. And it's just not that hard right now. The hard part is trying to stay on, stay on top of the curve so that it doesn't sound outdated by the time it publishes. I mean... I've never had to edit so late in the in the cycle as I had to edit this book. I mean, I I was I had to have stuff retypeset because there were just little incidental notes that became in, in the course of the 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 year-long publishing cycle that were no longer relevant or just sounded dated. The references sounded dated. I mean, already World of Warcraft sounds dated, you know. Um, God, I hope I don't have anything. I, don't, I hope I didn't mention Facebook in there because that's so horribly twelve hours ago. Um, it, it it is it is very much the case. I think we are living in a in a in a in a science fiction world. Um, that and I I think that uh, I think we're probably living in a not very well plotted Philip K. Dick book. Um, but but that leaves room for optimism. <laughs> uh, guarded optimism. <laughs> <laughs> um, talk a little bit about. What, did you feel any trepidation entering the science fiction genre? I mean, the science fiction world is somewhat uh, 
shall we say, clannish. It can be seen as clannish. And when writers who who have uh, big, um, you know, opuses, you know, a lot of work outside the genre, decide to take on science fiction. Um, have you read a lot of science fiction? Not recently, but mm. you know, as a kid, I was a I was a big fantasy science fiction guy. That was that was really what I read. You know, mm-hmm. long before I read crime, I read fantasy and science fiction. Um, no, it didn't really even occur to me. I mean, in the same sense that I don't necessarily think of uh, the Joe Pitt books as horror. You know, I still very much think of them as as noir. Uh, um, I think of Sleepless more as crime story in a you know and but you know it's you know you can't mince words too much i mean it's it's easier it's easier and it's probably just as apt to say that it's science fiction as it is to say that it's crime um but it never no it never occurred to me i mean the only trepidation that i might have felt was that you know i've published straightforward hard-boiled crime i've published the the joe pitt noirs with a vampire detective i've published the shotgun rule, which a lot of people think of as, you know, as very, very hard-edged uh, young adult fiction. Um, and now I'm doing this, you know. So so the only trepidation might be that I'm shooting myself in the foot in terms of the marketplace, you know, as a, just as a purely commercial prospect of of letting my readers get a hold of who I am and letting my my publisher really have their best, be able to put their best foot put foot forward. I keep kind of shifting the ground underneath them and they're they're always game to try and find the new ground. But, you know, uh, so that would that would probably be about the only real fear that I had. Uh, tell us a little bit um, about the the movies that may be based on this or any one of your other novels. Is that, is are we more likely to see a Joe Pitt movie or uh I I not that I I mean the there's a the there's a company that has the option mm-hmm. and that uh has had it for some time and uh they have a very nice script that I read a, an early draft of and really cared and really, really liked and and I I would hope you know they would you know I'm I'm always speaking of of uh marketplace decisions I Whenever people, you know, somebody was asking me uh, the other night if I uh, if I think about the movies when I'm writing the books, and you know, if, and I'm I'm like, you know, if I am, if I do, I'm not very good at it, uh, and and this just kind of speaks to my market instincts anyway. You know, I I just wrote the final, I just ended the Joe Pitt series at five books by design and a conscious choice when I could have kept writing more. My publisher would have been happy to, to to do more of them, and I waited until the absolute white hot burning tip of the vampire craze to kill off my uh, vampire series, although not the character. Uh, and um, so I don't know if 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 there's no if there's no Joe Pitt movie in this climate, I don't know if there'll ever be a Joe Pitt movie. Uh, and then. Caught stealing. There is somebody does have an option, a film option on caught stealing with a screenplay uh, that for it that I wrote, but uh, I'm not at liberty to to say who right now. I'm working on a television pilot based on the mystic arts of erasing all signs of death for HBO uh, with Alan Ball as uh, executive producer, and that's um, that's in the writing stages. We're we're in the late writing stages for the pilot, but it's still. A long, long way away from anyone deciding if they would want to produce a pilot, and then I'm working on a um, 
uh, an original cop show that was actually an idea that uh, a friend of mine, uh, uh, an established TV writer, had, and we've been working on that together. And that's uh, we're right. We've written the pilot for that. That's at a network, and we're just kind of waiting day by day to find out if they're going to shoot the pilot on that one. Um, so yeah, there's some stuff going on over there. Oh, great. Now, uh, what about what? Where are you going? What? sort of book might we look for you next fantasy uh romance (laughs) romance Hmm. there's a thought well you know i think we've talked in the past Mm -hmm. that i i do have a i do have a fantasy novel in the back of my head that i've been wanting to write for some time now Mm -hmm. i think that it's not quite ready i haven't found the angle on it exactly i've got the three main characters and kind of the universe that i want them to exist in um I think that part of my reluctance to start it now is that I that coming off of is is really just a, a career concern uh, more than anything else. I think coming off of Sleepless, uh, I've got two or three different novels I'd like to write. Uh, one of them would be this fantasy novel. One of them would be a sequel to The Mystic Arts, and one of them would be a a very contemporary uh, novel, more. In a, more of a contemporary espionage than contemporary crime that that would probably be a companion piece to sleepless in terms of style but not you know not in that world not science fiction at all um and i think coming out of sleepless it would be unwise of me to to after that left turn to make an, an abrupt right turn into fantasy so uh what i'll probably start either on a sequel to mystic arts or i'll, I'll or on this this I'm not sure if Espionage is the right book, but this more traditional book that I'm thinking of. But it's going to be a little while. I'm going to be, I've been publishing two a year for several years now, and there's going to be a gap. Now there's going to be, um, not only did I conclude the Joe Pitt series, but I, I spent the last seven or eight months uh, doing working on the TV stuff, working on some stuff for Marvel, and just kind of taking a breather. So if I were going to publish a novel next year, I'd need to be finishing it now, and I'm not. So it's going to be probably about two years before I publish another novel. Well, we'll look for the TV series and your work for Marvel. What are you doing work doing with Marvel? Uh, right now, they're publishing a miniseries based on the Rich Buckler, Doug Munch uh, character, Deathlock. And then in the fall, I'll have a, a, a long-running a, a year on one of their major titles. But again... They won't let me say what it is. They'd have to send a superhero to kill you in order exactly. to <laughs> if you did. Precisely. <laughs> Precisely. Well, I don't see anybody hanging from the ceiling, so I guess we're not going to get it out of you now. I've been talking with Charlie Houston. His newest book is Sleepless. Thank you for joining me, Charlie. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Rick. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.